this week, it's been kind of difficult watching the news. Started off with a holiday. That's that's a good part, you know. But as you've watched the news, it's just been one thing after another. And, and there's been times I've turned on the news, and you know, you, you're, you're sad at one moment, you're scared in another moment, you're angry, and then you're depressed, and then maybe you're you're angry again. And then and then the news commentary comes on, and and you look at Facebook, and you look at what everybody thinks about what's going on, and it just stirs it all up again. Everybody is, is looking for solutions to the troubles in our nation, in our world. What if the answer doesn't lie with legislation and law? What if the answer doesn't lie with, with questions of racism and, and which lives matter? What if, what if the answer is somewhere else? I'm always worried I, I make things sound too simple. And, I'm sure things aren't simple, but as I worked through my sermon for this week, I kept coming back to one realization. What if we started where Jesus starts? What if we simply did what Jesus calls us to do here? You know, what, what if we did the things that he, that he tells us to do? What if in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our community, and in our nation, and in our world, we just simply followed Jesus? And, and simplistic or not, what Jesus says here is exactly what we need to hear. This week we're beginning a look through Revelation. Specifically, we're looking at chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Revelation, it's interesting. It fascinates us. Confuses us. Sometimes we want to argue about what it means and what it says. But whatever Revelation means to us, we first have to read it and try to find out what did it say to the original readers. What did it say to those people it was originally written to? Revelation is addressed to seven specific churches. Seven churches from the heart of Jesus through the writing of the Apostle John. John writes Revelation somewhere around 95 A.D. We can nail it down to about 93 to 95 A.D. Life was getting more difficult for Christians. It was scary. People were getting angry. People were getting depressed. They had expected Jesus to come back by now, and, and He still hadn't shown up yet. So what do they hold on to? When the world is crumbling, when things just don't make sense, and when life is getting tougher, what do you do? I want to begin, as John does for those seven churches, I want to begin in chapter 1, verses 9-20. through 20. John begins in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. He says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John begins and he tells us that it was the Lord's Day. In other words, it was Sunday. By this time, by A.D. 95, the church had already established that a common day of worship was, was essential to what they were doing. And that common day was... Sunday. But John is not in church. John is on an island called Patmos. It was a, 
an island where they sent prisoners. It was an island where they sent political prisoners. He is exiled to Patmos, and he is alone in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the sea. It's a very nasty place to be. But while he's there, his church back home is worshiping. And so while John is away, away from his friends, John is also worshiping here on, on this Sunday uh, as his church is. So we go on and we read in verse 12, he said, then I turned to see the voice. <laughs> I like that. I want to see the voice. I want to turn to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long white robe and with a gold sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a, serv- in a, in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the, shine, the sun shining in full strength. John's vision is that of a man of incredible power. He, he, he t- says in verse 13, he was like the Son of Man. And, and you notice the repetition of the number seven. It's there over and over again. And you're going to see it all through these letters. In fact, you'd see it all the way through Revelation. Seven stands for completion. It stands for perfection. It stands for God's plan and God's presence. And so what does John do when he sees this man? What else can he do? He falls down in worship. Verse 17, he says, "...when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen." those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What would we do if we had a letter to our church from Jesus? What would we do if we had a letter from Jesus? What if it had said, Write this, write these things to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Kansas, to Thyatira, and on and on and on. What would we do with a letter like that? We would, we would love it. We would treasure it. We would honor it. We would read it until we knew it by heart. We would read it until we knew the sender by heart. What is very apparent from these seven letters is that Jesus knew these churches. And if He knows them, then He also knows us. He knows what we are about. And so, just as we see here, just as we have to understand for ourselves, Jesus knows our works. We're going to begin as Jesus does, as John does, in verse or chapter 2, verses 1-7. through seven. This begins with the, the first letter to the church in Ephesus. You know, very often we talk about the church in Jerusalem. We talk about how we need to understand the church in Jerusalem. We need to do things the way they did in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the first church. We need to go back and do things exactly like they did in Jerusalem. We know more about Ephesus than we do about Jerusalem. We know more about the church in Ephesus than we do any other church in the New Testament. We have, well, first of all, we have Acts, which tells us that Paul planted this church in Ephesus. 
Paul spent more time at the church in Ephesus than any other church. Paul spent three years there. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the elders of the church in Ephesus that someday men will come, false teachers will come from among their own number to try to scatter them and try to harm them. He warns them that that will happen way back in Acts chapter 20. We have the letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to this church. In addition to that, we've got First and Second Timothy both written to the guy who was preaching in Ephesus. We have other mentions about Ephesus. Acts chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, Paul says, I fought wild beasts while I was in Ephesus. Is he talking about literal wild animals? No, he's talking about spiritual battles. He's saying that I fought wild beasts. They were dangerous. There were dangerous battles in Ephesus. There were dangerous things happening, but I fought them. He goes on, and well, we, we continue on with Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you, this you have, you Hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's amazing symmetry in these letters. Each one of them begins with those words, I know, I know, I know. Verse 2 says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. All of that points to the intensity of their labor. Some of your Bibles say your wearisome toil. They were exhausted and Jesus knows that they're exhausted. He goes on and He says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. The very thing that Paul warned them about in Acts chapter 20, they've passed that test. They are exhausted. When it would have been more convenient to go along with the crowd, they stood for the truth. When it would have been more convenient to go along with society, when it certainly would have been safer, they stood for what was right. They stood for Christ. He says in verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You notice he says you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, not that you hate the Nicolaitans themselves, but you hate what they do. We don't, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. There are a few assumptions that we make about them. What we do know is that they were false teachers, that they were traveling preachers who had abandoned the truth and they stirred people up. And so, Jesus warns them about evil coming from within the church. Evil that you're going to have to fight from within the church. But then there was also evil from outside. Ephesus itself was an evil place. Ephesus was the capital city. There were about a quarter of a million people living in Ephesus. That was a lot of people back then in a capital city. 
And Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis, their fertility goddess. Ephesus was also the home of the temple of Domitian. Now, Domitian was the emperor in the time that this letter was written, in the time that Revelation was written. Emperors were worshipped as gods, right? Remember that? We worship the emperor as a god. Domitian had a son who had died. And when Domitian's son died, he had his son deified. He had his son made into a god. And so, they were to worship Domitian as the emperor, as the god, the emperor god. They were to worship Domitian's son as the son of God. In fact, there in Ephesus, there was a coin that had been struck commemorating the life of Domitian's child. And the coin shows Domitian's son with seven stars in his right hand. And what does Jesus do in this letter? How does He identify Himself? The One who holds the seven stars in His right hand. In other words, don't fall for the counterfeit. Don't fall for the false one that's been given to you. You pay attention to Me. I'm the real thing. So the takeaway for us is don't be afraid to take a stand for the truth. It may not always be popular, and and that's fine. It it may not always be convenient. That's okay. It may not always be legal. That's all right. Jesus knows our works. He knows our patient endurance. We don't change what we believe about Jesus just because it becomes unpopular. We hold to it. And that does not escape His notice. But what this letter tells us isn't just that He knows our works. It tells us that He knows our hearts. He knows our hearts as well. Every letter begins with those words. I know. I know. I know. That's that's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful thing. Verse 3 says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for My namesake, and you have not grown weary. That is a beautiful thing right there. There are times when we want people to know how hard we've worked. We want people to know how much we've invested, not just of our time, not just of our money, but of our sweat. (laughs) That we have sweat equity in something. We want people to know that we have invested our very being. We have invested our tears. And Jesus knows that. At times you think you're suffering alone. There are times you think that no one knows the pain that you're experiencing or what it's costing you to hold on as tightly as you do. Jesus knows. He sees that. There's a wonderful psalm. Psalm 56, verse 8 says, You keep track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Isn't that a wonderful promise? You keep track of my every toss and turn. You know, all those tosses and turns, Jesus counts. He knows every one of them. You keep track of my every toss and turn through sleepless nights. Each tear is entered into your ledger. Each ache written into your book. Jesus knows those tears were not wasted. They were not unseen. He saw. But that kind of language should also terrify you. It should also terrify us because this isn't just, I know about you. This isn't just, I know your name. It's intimate language. It is, I know you. You cannot hide who you are from Me. And in language that is very clear, Jesus confronts the problem with Ephesus. He says in verse 4, but I have this against you. 
We ought to pay attention if Jesus says He has something against someone, right? Jesus, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? You know, Jesus is my friend. But I have this against you. That ought to cause us to stop and think. I might want to hear this. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Ouch. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul wrote that letter to the Ephesian church. He wrote that about 30 years before John wrote this. About 30, 35 years before, before Jesus dictates this to John, Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesian church. And he starts out in, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What happened in 30 years? That they went from, I know your love, I've heard of your love, to Jesus saying, you've abandoned. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. What happened in those years that had caused them to fall out of love? At the end of Revelation, the church is presented as the bride of Christ. The bride of the Lamb. But this bride no longer loves her husband. Not the way she did at first. Not with the same devotion. The intensity is gone. The joy is gone. There is no spark in this marriage. Jesus and His church are mere roommates at this time. The righteous brothers would have said of the church, she's lost that loving feeling. That was the condemnation there. What it was that made them one, the church and Jesus, it's gone. And Jesus noticed. He noticed the love wasn't there. And I guarantee you this, the rest of Ephesus, they noticed too. They noticed that those Christians weren't quite the people that they had been. They noticed that the love wasn't there anymore. There's a warning for us here. There's a lot of things that we can do that are right. We can take a lot of right stands. We can be on the right side, and we can still miss out. We can be on the Lord's side. We can be on truth's side. We can be known for doing great things. We can impact our community and our world, but without love, it is all meaningless. The fact is, there are a lot of things that churches get known for. A lot of things that churches become known for, both good and bad. But if we are known for anything, anything but the love of Christ, if we are known for anything but the love of Christ, then at best we are a joke, and at worst we are an abomination. If we are not first known because of our relationship with Jesus, we have missed the point. Above anything else, we must be known by our love for Jesus. Revelation was a circular letter. Kind of a chain letter of sorts. What that meant was it, it first went to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus got it first and they read it. And after they were done, they passed it on to Smyrna. And then Smyrna passed it on to the next church. And it just kept going that way and going on and on and on. So each one of them would read it. And can you imagine what that must have been like? You're reading this letter, you're in Ephesus and you're reading it, but then you go on and you read what he says to the other churches. And, and he hammers some of those other churches pretty hard. And suddenly you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe we've abandoned our first love, but at least we're not Laodicea. You know, we're not that bad. He says he's going to throw up because of Laodicea. All he says here is that we've abandoned our first love. 
So every letter ends with those words that you read there in in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear what the Spirit says to you. Whether you're in Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Kansas, listen to what the Spirit says to you. Each letter can apply to who we are, to where we are, to when we are, to our own needs and our own problems. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Let that sink in. Let that sink in for us, for where we are. Remember what Jesus said when He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You remember? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded, He said, the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then He said, the second one is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Put that with what Jesus says here about Ephesus. You have forsaken your first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. We can't do things just to keep busy. We can't even do them because they're the right things to do. You hear me? We can't even do things just because they're the right things to do. If the love of God isn't first, if that isn't seen in the way we love others first, we have missed the point. And so Jesus' prescription for this problem is in verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There are three commands in that one little verse. Remember, repent, and do. Remember the love you had at first. Where did it go? How did you lose that loving feeling? What happened to that love? And then repent. Literally, turn around and go the other direction. Turn around and then do. Do the things that you did at first. You ever do that with your spouse? You ever go back to those old places? You ever go back to the place where you had your first date? You know, you ever go back to that place where the first dance was held? That first restaurant? That first kiss? That first walk in the park? Wherever it was, whatever it was. Do you ever go back and remember that? And remember the place where you looked into that person's eyes and said, this is the person for me. From here on out, that's the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. Jesus is calling us to do that with Him. But you notice what He didn't tell us to do? He didn't tell us that we could do nothing. He didn't tell us to go on with the status quo. There's never an option for us as a church or as individual believers to just go on with the status quo. Faithfulness is required. And it might be times when we have to take a good hard look at ourselves and ask, am I serving out of love? Are we giving Jesus our hearts or are we just giving Him our hands? When Jesus looks at me and says, I know, what is it that He knows about me? What is it that He knows about us? What does He see? All seven of these letters form a sort of system of core beliefs for us. Through their encouragements and through their warnings, we see Jesus' hearts. Jesus' heart, excuse me. And so we're going to see some amazing stuff over the next 
seven weeks over the next seven letters. But it all starts here. It starts with love. For us as individuals, love for us as a church. If the love of Christ does not motivate us, then what is the point? If the church simply exists to do good, if we simply exist to be a system of social welfare or to to meet people's needs without a supernatural relationship with a God that loves us, then what is the point? And all of these letters conclude with a promise to the one who overcomes as a promise to the one who conquers. Verse 7 says, to the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You and I read that, the tree of life in the paradise of God, and we're immediately taken back to Genesis, right? Think about the tree of life in paradise. That's what you and I think of. But the Ephesians would have thought of something else, something a little different. There in in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, the the goddess Artemis. Artemis was was a fertility goddess. And Artemis' symbol... The symbol of her fertility was the tree of life. There was a tree, and that was Artemis' tree. And there in the temple of Artemis, there was a tree shrine. And law said that if you were a criminal, if you had committed some crime, if you had done something wrong and you were being pursued for that, if you made it to the tree, you were safe. It was a place of refuge for criminals. And so when Jesus says to the Ephesians, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, those Ephesians would have immediately thought about the tree there in the temple. And that if anyone made it to that tree, they were safe. There's another tree that ought to come to mind when we think of that. There's another tree that we ought to think of. The cross. There is safety in the love of Jesus. There is refuge in the love of Jesus. And there is life in the love of Jesus. And for those who reach that tree, whatever they've done wrong, whatever sin you've committed, whatever wrong you've committed, you're safe when you come to that tree. When God reached out to save us, it wasn't His works that He told us to concentrate on. It wasn't His toil. And it wasn't His patient endurance, although He endures very patiently with us. It was love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What else can we return besides love? Put love first. Put Jesus you stand with me as we pray? Father in Heaven, we look at the struggles in our world today. We see the struggles and the pain in our nation. And we know the struggles and pain in our heart just as You know them also. We know there are no easy answers. But could it be that we've forgotten that above all else, we are called to love. We are called to love You. And that the best expression of that love is how we treat each other, how we treat our neighbors. Could it be that we've forsaken in our own lives and relationships what You so perfectly displayed on the cross? So help us to return to that first love, to repent 
and to do the things we did at first. Help us to fall so in love with Your Son that the only thing that matters is how we love Him and how we love each other. Father, I pray that as those around us see us, as they see what we do, it's not just things. It's not just the meals or the VBS or the services we provide. It is the love that motivates us and moves us and draws us ever into Your presence and ever into the likeness of Yourself. Thank You for the amazing way You've loved us and that You call us to love You in return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.